Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, last week um, we were in chapters uh, 8, really 8, 5 through 11. And, and I want to kind of just back up again. Every time, we, every time we get together, I try to back up and give us um, a little bit of not only review, but a perspective that maybe helps clarify big chunks of text. And one of the things that, that I've been processing this week, again, looking back at it, as we looked at the seven seals in chapters 6 and 7, if you remember, chapter 7 was one of those pauses, those interlude that happens between number 6 and 7. So six seals... And then chapter 7 is a pause. And then really chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 is the seventh seal. And it's the pause that oftentimes gives us the lesson that we're supposed to learn. So the six seals very much where chaos is happening on earth. Four horses are coming in. Christians are dying. They're being persecuted. And by the way, one of the things I processed this week working on a sermon for Revelation chapter 7, um, really 6 and 7, is that those souls are, that are under the altar slain because of their faith... John's own brother is one of the people who have been persecuted and killed for his faith. And to me, that makes it a lot more personal to go. His own brother is one of those voices that cries out from uh, the blood of the altar. How long until you avenge and give justice for these wrongs that have happened in the chaos of the world? And so chapter six and seven very much is what does answering this question, what does God promise in the midst of the chaos on the earth? As Christians are dying and as wars happen and as nations take over nations and as famine and social and and economic disparity take place, what does God promise? He promises that Christians will be secure. Some of the imagery of that is we are sealed. God has marked us. He knows who we are. We can stand because we stand with the Lamb. Even though the Lamb was slain in chapter 4 and 5, He's still standing. That's a paradox. A sacrificed lamb is still standing, and we who even sacrifice our own lives can still stand. And we're counted. God knows who we are. He has counted us. In our chapter, we're going to see similar, uh, similar kind of metaphor in the sense that he measures the temple. And that has a similar kind of effect. He counts the people, but he also measures the temple, and he knows who's in and who's out. There's kind of a similar metaphor that's used in our text uh, that we're covering both last week and today. So in, in kind of in a similar fashion, chapters 8 through 11, the seven trumpets answer this question. What are we called to do in the midst of this chaos on earth? So number one, uh, you know, the first set of sevens, I think, does answer what does God promise? I think this one more than anything else goes, how do we respond to this chaos that is the earth? And if you remember in the trumpets one through six, it very much, um, they were very much describing plagues that would be poured out on the earth because the people, and you remember this phrase that repeated, they did not repent, they did not repent, they did not repent. And both like Egypt and like Babylon and like Israel, no matter what God did, these people had so hardened their hearts against God that they wouldn't change their ways. And so the plagues in the first six trumpets were more spiritual plagues. You saw demonic and I would say oppression and rising up and tormenting is one of the words used there. 
So you see even kind of military metaphors of demonic oppressions where they ride in on horses and they overcome and they conquer people. And, and the question again comes, the answer again comes to this question in the pause, which is in chapters 10 and 11. Um, and so chapters 10 and 11 is where we want to focus again a little bit today. We read through them rather quickly at the end last time. And I walked home feeling kind of guilty. It's like, oh my goodness, there is so much more to be said about that. And, and actually, that's the beauty of being able to come back the next week, is we can come back and slow down for just a moment. And I think the, the answer to both of these questions is fitting because what we're going to do next week is we're actually going to take a pause in all of this action and notice who the enemy is. And we're going to see Satan pictured as a dragon. And we're going to see two beasts that one comes out of the sea and one comes out of the earth. And we're going to see these three almost being in contrast to um, the Trinity of God. God the Father, the Lamb, and the Holy Spirit. And they're going to act in parody like him because they want to mimic him and deceive the world. And so they're going to go to war, first of all, against a woman it looks like Mary. It kind of looks like um, it kind of looks like Israel. It gives birth to a Messiah King baby, and they go pursue him, but they can't capture him, and so they go pursue the rest of the people. And so even that story that we're going to see in chapters twelve and thirteen is similar to this story here, is is that we are at war, and how will we respond? And another question would be, how will we resist the enemy? And, and that really becomes this answer that we're going to see in chapters 10 and 11. How do we stand in a world that opposes Jesus, that crucified Jesus? How do we live there? Um, in the midst of all the voices, I had one uh, author I was reading this week who talked about all the noises in chapters uh, in the seven trumpets. You have seven trumpets. Those are loud. I played trumpet in junior high. It's loud. Um, you have all these voices that happened. You have roaring voices and rushing water voices. You have all of these sounds, and you also have this world that's in opposition to God. And this question becomes, what kind of voice are we called to have? And ultimately, the picture that we have is that we're called to be a voice of witness even when the world rejects the word of God. We're su- supposed to still stand up in this, and, and here's the, the phrase I want to give you, in this line of witnesses, or you could say even heritage of witnesses. And specifically, three are going to be pictured. Three witnesses are going to be pictured in this text. One is going to be Ezekiel, who, by the way, witnessed to a group of people who had been exiled out of Israel. And we're going to read his, a text of his call in just a moment. One is Ezekiel, one is Elijah, who, if you remember, had that whole moment of uh, him and the prophets of Baal and Jezebel and Ahab, and very much stood up as a voice in a generation of people who had rejected God for idolatry. So we have Ezekiel, we have Elijah, and then the other one we've already seen, we're going to see again, is Moses, who again goes into Pharaoh, an emperor of an oppressive government, very much like Rome, and says, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go, at the risk of his own life. And so what this text is going to say is that we stand in this, or John especially, but we also stand in this line, and the question becomes, how will we speak even when we live amongst the people who reject the word of God? 
And will we be safe even when they kill us, even when they persecute us, even when they oppose us or they don't listen to us? So I want to paint a little bit of that picture. Um, and, and the reason I want to do that is because very much uh, behind this text are three And today we're going to talk specifically about two stories. Uh, But if you have your Bibles, I'm going to open up to the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, if you wouldn't mind. And and we're going to do something I don't typically do. um, But we're actually going to look at two, maybe even three chapters. We're not going to read straight through. uh, But we are going to look at some highlights between these two to three chapters. To notice how similar Ezekiel's call is. So not only um, these few chapters in Revelation, but Revelation as a whole. Uh, Ezekiel's called to be a prophet. And let me kind of set the stage again. Uh, Israel, Judah, uh, the southern kingdom around Jerusalem, they have been taken out of Jerusalem and Judea by Babylon. And Ezekiel is called to speak to these people and to speak during this time when the temple has been destroyed. It's very much similar to John's generation to where the temple has been destroyed again in 70 AD, and John again is called to speak to a people. So I want to just highlight a few things that are parallels. Um, Number one, notice in verse four of chapter one. Notice as he says, he says, as I looked, behold, very much the same kind of vision language that we've seen in Revelation. Very minor note, but just notice there's some parallels here. Revelation's not on new territory. There's some common ground. Look in verse 5. From the midst there came a likeness of four living creatures. If you're going to look at the four of them, they're described in verse 10. One had a human face, one had a lion, one looked like an ox and like an eagle. And actually, the the four had these four faces. They look like the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4. There's a lot, of, a lot in common between Ezekiel and what John is experiencing in his visions as well. As we, we move on, um, there is a, a vision of a throne that's kind of a chariot throne. We've mentioned that before. I want to go into chapter 2, and I'm actually going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the entire chapter for us. This is when Ezekiel is called to do his role. And I want to hear it in this light. What are we called to do on earth in the midst of the chaos that's going on? How do we resist? So he said to me, son of man, stand, notice chapter seven, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And he spoke with me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, son of man, I will send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. Does that sound like our context? Yeah, they did not repent. They did not repent. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And the descendants are also impundent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been amongst them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. You remember what those demons look like? They look like locusts and horses, and they stung like scorpions. Be not afraid of the works, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say. You be not rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me and had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, 
Son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll. And you go on in chapter 2 into chapter 3, from chapter 2 into chapter 3, and again it's going to say, do not be dismayed, do not be dismayed. He leaves this vision, and going all the way down to the verse 5 of chapter 3, he goes back to the people uh, who are exiled people, and he says, I sat there overwhelmed amongst them for seven days. And, and so he has this vision of him and his responsibility to go to a people who will not obey and not listen. They will not repent. And it's a little overwhelming to him. Um, the next verse in verse 16 um, in chapter 3. So at the end of these seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I, had made, I have made you a watchman. Well, what does a watchman do? Someone who looks out for an attack, something coming. I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, you are to give him, um, and, and you give him no warning? So let me say that again. If I say to the wicked, you're going to die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you do warn him, and it goes on to say, I will not require that blood. What this says is this to Ezekiel in this call. I'm going to hold you accountable to a people who need to repent. That if you will not stand and say, you need to repent and give them warning, I'm going to hold you culpable for their guilt. Now, that entire story, that entire call of Ezekiel, stands at the background of John's call and our call here. We live amongst a people and we are the watchmen. We are people who know God is going to, the the bittersweet scroll, God is going to save through Jesus, but he's also going to judge through Jesus. And we are called to be a watchman in the midst of the culture and world in which we live. Um, We're called to look out for people and make sure that they have at least heard the warning. Whether they hear it or not, or hear it or listen to it or not, is their response and their, their responsibility um, but ours is to make sure that they hear. So that's story number one. And, and we can go back to chapter 10. In fact, on your handout, um, it's, it's about the third to last page. Uh, we want to start in chapter 10. That's a little bit where we started to speed up a little bit last week. And I, I want to hear that text in the background of this text as this mighty angel comes down. And if you remember, one of the things that happens is in verse 9, John is told to take this scroll, this little scroll, and eat it. For it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will taste as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll, verse 10, from the hand of the angel, and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my mouth or my stomach turned bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The four, again, they're talking about all the earth. So very much like Ezekiel, John stands in this line, this heritage of witnesses. And that's, that's one of the answers to how do we respond? How are we called to respond in the midst of this chaos that's on the earth? Number one is we just keep speaking. We keep telling the truth. We, we continue to speak even if no one responds. Now, I know when we have in mind speaking, we always think like what Mark Christian does on a platform. Or maybe we even think like what, and, and I don't mean this in a belittling way, but like what the group of people do on uh, 171 and Main Street of Web City. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but I just want to say that speaking has more nuance than that. That speaking has more relationship than that. 
that very much this speaking is in the midst of broken relationships all around us at work. Sometimes it's just speaking simple truths to people that we know in our family, in our workplace, in our friendships, in our social circles. You know, for me, it's at the kids' ball fields. It's coaches that I hang out with. Uh, it are, it are, it, it's those moments that we proclaim simple truths of Jesus, and sometimes people can take them and sometimes they can reject them. And that's a little bit true of my extended family. I've had plenty of opportunities to preach at funerals for my family. Uh, preached at a funeral for my grandma and a funeral for an uncle. And and very much as a large whole, I think they would say we, you know, we accept the idea that God is God and whether or not they want to follow Jesus, I'm not really sure if they've ever clarified that. And it felt a little awkward to stand up in front of my family and preach those funeral sermons and have the conversations around the table afterwards. Um, but that's what we're called to do, even if it's uncomfortable. And I've had other uncomfortable conversations. I was sitting on an airplane next to a lady and a typical stereotypical airplane conversation. And we're talking about what we do. And, and, and honestly, she's cussing up a storm at this point, which really doesn't bother me. That's kind of my family culture growing up. Um, and so it's not really phasing me other than when she gets to what do I do? I'm like, I'm a preacher. And she's like, oh, I have my Bible. And she reaches in and get it. And it was just like one of those like, Okay, and, and you no, know, it phased me just for a moment, and then we had this great conversation afterwards, and and it was the the conversation again of like, okay, I shouldn't. Why why do I sometimes feel like I need to apologize for being a you know a person who stands for Jesus, and and I have those kinds of moments at other times, a political season. Um, sometimes we feel like we need to apologize for standing for some truths. Now, how we stand matters. Let me acknowledge that we stand like Jesus stood, and we bless our enemies, whoever they might be. We pray for those who persecute us. We turn the other cheek. We care about the lost and the poor and the sick. And so how we stand does, does matter and, and how we speak does matter. But we stand in this, this heritage, in this line. And, and so as we do this, we turn the page to chapter 11 and, and we're given some more promises like we were given in chapter 7. And at the same time, there's a narrative here. There's going to be a story here of what happens to people who stand for Jesus. And so this, this story really comes and in, in very much out of not only Ezekiel chapter 1, 2, and 3, but a little bit out of Ezekiel 40. And we're not going to turn over there, but Ezekiel in chapter 40 is given a vision of a temple. Now the temple's been destroyed. It's, it's actually six chapters of Ezekiel. I think it's 40 through 46, or actually it's eight chapters, 40 through 48. The temple's been destroyed. But Ezekiel's told to go and measure the temple. Why? Well, because God says, you know, basically he's saying, I'm still with you. I know who are my people and the temple's going to be rebuilt. I'm in control. And, and that's similar here. The temple in Jerusalem's destroyed. I'm with you. I still dwell with you. And he measures this temple. Um, there's going to be some other, another story that stands behind this. And, and I want to actually turn there in our Bibles as well. It's in Zechariah. Um, Zechariah's towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, and Zechariah is an interesting book. We've actually heard from Zechariah a few times. Um, we heard from Zechariah in chapter 6 because of the four horses that he mentions. Uh, he mentions four chariots. Um, but in chapter 3, there's an interesting dynamic that happens here. Um, and in fact, we could even back up a little bit further. I guess let's back up to the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 2, uh, Zechariah, like Ezekiel, is given a measuring line to measure. So something similar than what we're going to see in chapter uh, 11 of Revelation. And it's to measure the temple. The temple is still going to be something that God's going to restore. And in fact, God's going to use two people to do it. And one is a high priest, Joshua, 
and one is a governor slash in the line of kings, Zerubbabel. And in your notes, by the way, uh, number two, under the two witnesses, I have a word misplaced. Joshua is the high priest. Zerubbabel is the governor or the king. So that word and there uh, should not be, it should be Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel. So notice that. In Zechariah, he's going to have a vision of these two guys building the foundation of the temple again. Um, And these two are going to be described as the lampstands and the olive trees. But before we get there, I want to notice a few different things. Um, In chapter 2 of of Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 11, um, maybe back up to verse 10, God says this, I will dwell in your midst. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and I shall end... Um, in, and shall be my people. So many nations shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. That's kind of a vision of a temple, although Paul's going to say, no, it's actually the Holy Spirit, and you are the temple. The temple gets exploded in the New Testament, not in the sense of a negative way, expanded out. Now when you measure the temple, we measure the church, because we are the temple. And so that's intriguing. And as we move on to chapter 3, there's this incredible picture of Satan. Notice chapter, one, or chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Remember when I said last week that Satan gets cast out of heaven in Revelation because of the cross? This is another example of why we needed Jesus to do what he did. Even the high priest, the holiest person in the Jewish system, in the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant Jewish system, is standing before God and it the, the soiled garments in this is excrement. I mean, we could use slang curse words for the soil of these garments. It, he's standing before God, but his own sinfulness is such that it's like he's standing before God in garments, priestly garments that are covered with excrement. And Satan's accusing him. And what the Lord does is the Lord rebukes him. The Lord chooses Jerusalem and rebukes uh, Satan. And then, as Joshua is standing there in filthy garments, the angel takes them. And then in verse 4, I have taken away your iniquity. I will clothe you in pure garments, white robes. And then verse 8 in chapter 3 is a messianic prophecy. Hear, O Joshua. By the way, do you know this? the name Joshua is the same name as the name Jesus. Don't miss that. Joshua means the Lord saves. That's Joshua's name. We have a high priest who goes before God in all purity. Doesn't need to have anyone give him pure vestments or pure garments. He already is clean, but he gives us white robes. So there's this prophecy. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. The priests are a sign, a symbol of something that's yet to come. Behold, I will bring you my servant, the branch. Which what the branch means is something that grows out of and and it becomes a prophetic um, symbol for the one who comes out of David, this branch that grows out. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, Um, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What day was that? Good Friday. The iniquity of the land will be taken away in one sacrifice. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Vine and fig tree are the political symbols for Israel throughout the entire Old Testament. And so 
this branch that grows up, something happens in this prophecy that in a single day, all of the sin, not only of Joshua the high priest, but of all of the people is taken away. That's part of this vision. And, and this is connected to this chapter 4, to this vision that happens next of this temple. And we, or, or excuse me, of this lampstand and of these olive trees. And so the vision says, what do you see in verse 2 of chapter 4? I, be, I see a lampstand of gold and a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on top of it. With the seven lips of each lamp that are on top of it. They are, and there are two olive trees by it. One on the right, one on the other side. And I see... I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know who these are? No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Which, by the way, is exactly how we're called to stand right now. Not by might, not by political might, not by strength or power, but only through the Spirit of God. That's behind our text. When we see lampstand and olive trees, how do we stand? Only because the Spirit of the Lord. And then the question becomes, who are these? Um, And we find out Zerubbabel and Joshua stand behind these. And we find some other things that become parallel to what we're doing. But these are the two, verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Zerubbabel and Joshua were in a unique situation. They were called to go back out of exile, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the foundation of the temple. Now, they're called with other people to do this, uh, so they bring a group of people. But the problem is, is there are people in both the community and surrounding communities that don't want this to happen, that oppose God's temple being built and threaten them. And how are they called to stand? They're called to stand by speaking the truth, being a witness, and doing what God has called them to do, even if it costs them their lives. They're called to stand and stand with the Lord no matter what happens. And so I want us to hear, and the reason why we kind of slow down on those two texts in Ezekiel and in Zechariah is there's several threads that are in common. Number one, a people who are living in exile. They're not home yet. They're living amongst a people who have rejected God and oppressed his people. Number two, both of them are called to speak even though they face opposition. They're they're called to stand for God even though they face opposition. And I think, you know, when we take these images and go, what do they mean? And we forget that they already had meaning is what happens is we miss out on what they actually mean and we start making things up. And so when we come to chapter 11 and we read through this last week, um, we come to verse one and I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And we've already seen Zechariah and Ezekiel have this sense of measuring and they measure the temple. If you remember, they measure the temple, they measure the inside of the temple, but they leave the court of Gentiles um, and, and the word there is cast out to the earth to be trampled on by the nations. And then there's some terms. There's some, some numbers there. If you remember, one of them is three and a half. Um, there's 42 months and 1,260 days. Which these become interesting because these are all equal. These are all equal times. Um, three and a half months is 42. Two days, or 42 months, excuse me, three and a half years, excuse me, three and a half years is 42 months, is 1260 days if you're taking years to be about 360 days. So notice they're pictures, not precision science. And so this three and a half years image, by the way, is in the Old Testament as well, is kind of intriguing 
there's a lot of things that happen in kind of the three, it's like 40 years in the Bible. There's a lot of things that happen that are 40, that number 40. And, and 12 is another one of those numbers. But we didn't mention these last week, but notice the things that are uh, 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 days. The tribulation in Daniel 7, 9, and 12. The difficulty Israel will face because of their rebellion. And we have here this trampling of the outer court. And, and I would say this is picturing, again, the time that we're in now, but also the time that John's audience was in. You're going to face opposition. How will you stand? There's other things that happen that are interesting. Elijah, who, because of the miracles that happen with these two prophets in chapter 11, Elijah's prophecy against Israel and in Israel was about three and a half years. Um, the third one there, Antiochus of Epiphanes. And it's okay if you don't know that name. Um, Antiochus was a king, um, a ruler, that came in and conquered Jerusalem, Israel, and slaughtered pigs in the temple and actually committed human sacrifice in the temple as well. I mean, slaughtered people on the altar of God and pigs, which is absolutely, completely opposite of of everything Israel would stand for. You know this, human sacrifice and sacrifice of pigs. And and so he desecrated the temple. It's, It's what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. Okay, he's one of them. And his persecution of the people was about three and a half years. Jesus' ministry, as far as we can count, John's gospel is the one who gives us the best um, time markers because of the Passover feasts he mentions uh, that tells us that Jesus' ministry, public ministry, was around three and a half years, which it was faced with opposition, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. He spoke, and people were always trying to kill him, even from the very beginning. Like he speaks in his hometown, and they take him out outside the city to try to throw him off the cliff, and somehow he walks through the crowd. So from the very beginning to the very end, whether it's the temptations in the wilderness with Satan or the garden moment where he's facing this, take this cup from me moment, he faced opposition his entire ministry, three and a half years. Israel, if you count their time in the wilderness, it was actually 42 years because they spent two years before they came to the promised land border and were told to spy it out and then told because they came back and said, we can't face those people, we can't fight them. God says, well, you'll wander around till this generation dies. That, then 40 years. The total was 42 years. So these numbers have a lot of meaning to Israel of pain, of waiting, of wandering, of opposition, and, and at the same time of God's faithfulness in the midst of those. So I want us to hear those numbers as pictures that we will do what God's people have done. We will face opposition, but we will still speak truth and we will still stand for God faithfully. And so we see that, that dynamic going behind these two images. And again, we see two olive trees, and now there's two lampstands. Notice how these metaphors from the Old Testament do shift a little bit. They change. And these two look a lot like, and even though a lot of this comes from Ezekiel, they look like Moses and Elijah. We've mentioned them already. But they look like both Moses and Elijah. Now, here's an interesting thing about Moses and Elijah. When it comes to these two and how they die, they both die interesting kinds of deaths. Moses is looking over the promised land and um, is taken from this earth or dies on Mount Nebo. There's kind of an interesting dynamic about how he... And there's a lot of rabbinic, um, I would say, theories or stories. Let's just say stories about what happened to Moses. Um, but Elijah, the same way. What happens with Elijah? 
chariot of fire, chariot of fire, taken out. These two are both going to experience resurrection in this text, even though they face death because of their words. And I think there's some pictures both in, in their resurrection as well as in their opposition that the reason why these two are chosen. They both face leaders. Moses faces a Gentile leader, Pharaoh. Elijah faces his own king, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who are in opposition to God and worship Baal. So they also represent idolatry. And even on this one, they represent compromise of God's people. It's intriguing to me all the layers of the story that are behind these pictures. And, and you know, for us to go, what does this mean one-to-one, may not be the best way to do it. It may be best to go, what stories overlap and what stories echo and how are they the same? And then we walk away going, oh, that's the same story. And when you walk away going, that we live in the same story that they lived in, that gives us a whole lot of meaning. It gives us a lot of meaning to say we're just like Moses. We're just like Elijah. We might think that we're alone. Elijah goes away depressed. He's probably one of the most depressive guys we know in the Bible, other than maybe Jeremiah. There's a few others. David seems to be in the Psalms. So depression's not absent from the Bible. Um, But Elijah goes away depressed from the prophets of Baal moment, going, I'm all alone. I'm all alone. There's no one else. And, And God takes him out in the wilderness and feeds him and takes care of him and says, no, you're not all alone. You're not all alone. But he feels like he's speaking in a world where he's the only one who's sane. Do you ever feel that way in this world? My wife and I talk about raising kids in this world and we're like, are we just like, are we the only ones who are sane anymore? Like, we just can't, you just can't do that with your kids. Or like, we can't let our kids watch that. Or, and, and at the same time, it's like, are we just being, or are we just being faithful in a world? And it's hard to walk that line. But I want us to know that we're not the only people who face that kind of moment in a story is that we stand in this line of stories that have, been, that have been facing these kinds of things really since God called his people to be faithful to him. And, and so the, these people call out. Now, again, the imagery here is from Moses and Elijah. They call out plagues. Now, what are these? These are warnings. So both Moses and Elijah in the picture here are warning people. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Repent, repent, repent. Same thing that we've already heard from the plagues, but they don't repent. In the end, people get so frustrated with them that they kill them. They kill them. They martyr them. It's like the parable of the, the faithful tenants to where the father keeps sending his servants and then he sends his own son and they kill his son. And then they keep sending, keep sending servants and they're going to kill his servants because so they did with the teacher, so they're going to do with you. Now that's extending that parable out. But, but Jesus teaches that, that we are in the same story as the Messiah, the suffering servant from Isaiah, the one they have pierced. And so as these plagues come, these people, they do as they desire. They, they continue to reject. And, and we mentioned this last week on verse 9, um, or excuse me, verse 8. Their dead bodies, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, notice again, John's okay with telling us this is, these are pictures. It's called Sodom. And Egypt, where Jesus, their Lord, was crucified. Wait, I thought that was Jerusalem. Yes, because even Jerusalem has compromised to the point to where you might as well lump it in with Sodom and Egypt and Babylon and Rome. And cities just become this parade of cities who reject God and reject his people. We're in chapter 11, uh, verse 9. So they become, or verse 8, this parade of cities that reject God's people. And you can start throwing in other cities. I mean, we like to stereotype Las Vegas. But at times we have to go, 
sometimes do we live in our own community that has rejected Jesus and rejected his people and compromised themselves by doing whatever they want to do, or as the book of Judges said, that they, they did whatever their eyes saw fit to do. Uh, Judges says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as their eyes saw fit. And that's why Judges is a terrible book. I mean, if you're looking for heroes in Judges, there's not one. Like, Samson's not exactly the hero you saw on the flannel board when we grew up. And Gideon, he's not exactly the hero. The the point of that story is that even though God's people are so messed up because they're doing whatever their, their eyes see fit to do, he is still faithful in preserving their line. And he, he'll use messed up people like Samson and Gideon to do it. And, and there's a little bit of encouragement to us that God can use us messed up people as well. But the, the hero of the story is God. He can use a messed up people even when they're rejecting him. And, and so the, the people who reject, again, kill these two. And guess what John's audience is going through? They're, they're dying. For them to hear that they're just like the prophets who have given their life, that raises, that raises the stakes of why they're dying. You're not just dying a meaningless death. You're dying a death where God knows who you are. And you're dying, it, you're dying it in the midst of this grand epic story that's taking place. So then we have this three and a half days again, verse 9. For three and a half days, the peoples, the tribes, the languages, the nations, they will look on them and refuse to give them a, a place of, of death or a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry exchange of presents because the two prophets had been a torment on those who dwell on the earth. By the way, there are those who would celebrate the death of the church. Because it would mean the end of them being told that they are doing things that are against God. I have friends who that is true of them. High school friends, people I've interacted with, that for those who speak truth to all of a sudden be silenced would mean I no longer have someone who, are, who torments me with these words that, that I struggle with wondering, are they true? God is one day going to hold you accountable. That's uncomfortable. It's a bittersweet scroll. And so they, they celebrate this. Now, does, is this a picture of the church looking like at times it's defeated? Perhaps it is. I don't know that it's a huge chronological arc saying at some point the church worldwide is going to look like it's defeated. But perhaps in these cities of opposition where like Jerusalem, like Egypt, like Rome, like Babylon, like Sodom, it looks like God's people have been silenced. And yet they haven't. Because God is a God who somehow is able to take something that looks like it has been killed, destroyed, and raise it back up again. And so even though opposition and persecution have, have looked like they've won the day, God has a way of bringing China right now is a great example of that, by the way. Where it looks like communism has, has had so long silenced Christianity. And what we're starting to find out is like, no, like there's a lot of Christians there. In fact, more than we ever thought. And they've been baptizing people in numbers that are unfathomable for us. That's God saying, I'm going to raise up in the midst of a people who have looked like they've been killed. I'm going to raise up the church and it's going to show itself to be resurrected again. I think it's powerful. And, and will that be true in post-Christian nations? There's some post-Christian nations right now that are seeing maybe the word is revival. Maybe that to us has too many weird connotations, but revival means life given again. And, and at the same time, I think that can be true, that, that life can be breathed back in. So these two, in verse 11, for three and a half days, after these three and a half days, which, think about Jesus in the tomb, okay, there's some pictures there. Um, three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them. 
This reminds me a little bit of Ezekiel and the Valley of the Dry Bones, which was one of my favorite stories as a kid. The story of the Valley of Dry Bones, if you're not familiar with it in Ezekiel, is the story, it's a picture of Israel. They look dead. It's a valley of all these bones, and Ezekiel's taken out there, it's a vision, and there's these bones, and all the flesh has been dried off of them. And, and God has this interaction with, like, who are these? And it's like, these are my people. And, and then Ezekiel's called to speak out, like, speak truth over prophecy over these bones. Now, this is all a vision, and he speaks, but the vision has implications to him speaking to a dead people, spiritually dead people, and he speaks truth. Will they listen? Well, in this moment, the breath of God enters them. These bones come together, and it's almost like an Indiana Jones kind of scene. CGI would do really well with this scene, by the way. I'd love to see that put together at some point. And there's this army of people who are ready to, to follow God. And it's this vision of what Ezekiel's called to do. That's this vision, is that God can still speak. God can still breathe life into his people, let alone its resurrection of Jesus' image. There's so many overtones of all of these stories. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. The church rises again. You know how many times throughout history people have tried to, to extinguish the church? I mean, you go to Nazi Germany, you look at stories there. You go to Russia, you look at stories there. You, you go, and those are just modern stories. You go throughout time and history, you study the story of Tyndale and the Bible, and you walk through, and you, there's story after story of people trying to ex- get rid of the Bible, get rid of the church, and it keeps rising again. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud. Now, clouds in Revelation always represent the presence of God, um, which they do in the Old Testament as well. And their enemies watched over them. They watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Now, remember what we said earlier, trumpets and seven days and Jericho, a city in opposition to God. The city's going to fall. It's not going to stand. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake. And again, don't take numbers. A lot of people die in this earthquake. If Almost a picture of everyone. And the rest were terrified. And they gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe would pass. Behold, the third woe is to come soon. This really brings us to judgment at the end. This is, uh, as we turn the page, verse 15, this is the end of the uncreation of creation. The last trumpet. And that's what this brings us to. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay? That's a picture of Jesus has come. It's done. And and like we've said before, the seven seals lead us to the end. The seven trumpets lead us to the end. The story of the beasts and the dragon are going to lead us through the whole history of uh, creation. And we're going to come to the seven bowls, and it's going to lead us up to the end again. And then we're going to, chapter 21, 22, come to the final end. So we have this preview of the end several times. So then we have verse 16. The 24 elders, you remember them from chapter 4 and 5, who sit on the thrones before God, they fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, which that phrase means he's in charge of it all. Almighty is a word that they called the emperor. Uh, we give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty. Now, I'm going to pause and maybe this is a little bit off base. No, it's not. That we give thanks to you phrase can actually help you get through a whole lot of difficulty. And I'm walking through that in my life at different times. But sometimes the ability to say, God, I thank you even though. Nevertheless, I give thanks. Um, We don't have, but I give thanks for what we have. Um, We have sickness, but I give thanks for what we also have. We have blessing. 
Um, we might not have steak, but we have bread. I give thanks. Uh, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And this phrase has been changed from how we've seen it already a few times. Who is, who was, what do you expect it to say after that? And who is to come. That's how it's spoken thus far. But now it's changed. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is now, who was in the past, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So now it's not, you're going to reign someday, or you are to come. It's no, this is the end. Now, the, now it is all established. So verse 18 gives us a summary. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets. Hear that. We stand in the line of the prophets. The prophets and the holy ones are the saints. All those who fear your name, both small and great. And then this phrase is interesting. And for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. If you remember back to chapter 9, verse 11. Um, there was a plague described, um, and I'll, I'll turn there, you don't necessarily have to, but in chapter 9, verse 11, there was this angel that came out of the bottomless pit. You remember this? And he's the one who released all these plagues. His name was Abaddon or Apollyon. Do you remember those two words? They're two different languages, um, but those two words meant destroyer. This picture, it seems to be a picture of Satan, in this picture is destroyed. The one who has caused so much pain and opposition to God and opposition to his people, here the destroying of the destroyers takes place. And so we come to this end of the enemy. Now we're going to see a picture of this again because Satan and his, and his beasts and the angels are going to be, uh, his angels are going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, the fiery abyss or, or hell. And, and the lake of burning sulfur is another picture of that. But, but this is a glimpse of what we're going to see in a more played out picture later on in Revelation. And then verse 19, which is a one verse description of chapter 21, 22. And then the temple in heaven, notice not on earth, in heaven was opened. And the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. Now this is, you, some of you watched Indiana Jones. I'm assuming most of you have. My, my kids, my two older kids, just watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade for the first time. They're 10 and 7. The only scene I was most afraid of was when the knight, like, uh, the, or the guy drinks from the wrong cup and he, like, melts his skin off. And I, I forgot how fake it looks. But my kids were like, what just happened? Like, is it first? But, but the, that Ark of the Covenant uh, movie, um, there's, there's a lot of rumor about the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Old Testament doesn't mention what happens to it. The last, times it's, last time it's mentioned is with that, that king by the name of Josiah. He's eight years old when he starts being king, which is a scary thought. Um, but he's, he's faithful because of his advisors around him, which, you know, oftentimes our advisors of our leaders help, help make or break them. Um, but the Ark of the Covenant, that's the last time it's mentioned. Now, there's all kinds of Jewish uh, narrative that goes along with what happened to it. Two main stories. One story is that when Babylon came in, 586 or so, and destroyed the Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took the people to Babylon. So that's time of Ezekiel, time of, time of Daniel, uh, that, that's time of Zechariah. That's all the Old Testament text standing behind this text. That's their time, is that that's when the ark was taken. And, and that really is kind of the dominant view, if you will, is that uh, the rabbinic view is that the ark was taken during that time and never, never seen again possibly hidden somewhere in Babylon, um, but never seen again. 
if this is the case, the Ark of the Covenant being put back in the temple means that God, God has conquered. God has brought back everything that represents his presence and his people are there. That, that's, that picture is pretty important if you're a Jewish person because the temple and the Ark represent where you go meet with God and that God is with you and he empowers you. Now, there's another uh, rabbinic uh, story, or a Jewish story. It's in 2 Maccabees. Um, so it's, it's a book about this time between the prophets and the New Testament. And, and one of the stories is that um, Josiah actually took the ark and some of the bread that was manna and that staff, Aaron's staff, that budded out. And he took that and he hid it uh, in a mountain, which is um, Mount Nebo, which is where Moses was buried and where he looked in on the promised land. That he took it to a cave, he hid it there, and he covered it up with stone, and that somewhere underneath that mountain is the Ark of the Covenant, um, which would be pretty incredible. I'm going to be in Israel, I'm like, is it in there? You know, they just, they just found scrolls, more scrolls, Dead Sea scrolls um, in the Dead Sea that date back to the first century world. So it's not like we've searched every nook and cranny in that, in that uh, Middle Eastern world or in that uh, Palestinian world. And so um, those are two of the stories. Now, the image here is that we get to dwell with God. And over and over again, the picture of heaven is not about streets of gold. You're going to hear me say this over and over again. It's not so much about how wealthy will be or, or any of those things. That's not to say that there won't be good things there. I just think that we'll be so content that we won't care. Like contentment is powerful. I don't know how many times you've just sat in life and said, I don't need anything else. Life, life is just perfectly good. I'm content. No, instead what we have is, I don't know that I slept well last night. My back hurts. I ran, I ran yesterday. I ran six miles. My ankle hurts today. I'm like, I'm getting so old, right? We, we, I have like the sense of like our house might be falling apart. So I'm like praying over it. Um, they're like, okay, okay, is that foundational issue? The hail? Do I need to fix the roof? Um, my truck's about ready to die. Do I need a truck? Um, but even, you know, we, we have contentment issues that span all kinds of things. Not only money, but health and relationship. I look forward to heaven because part of the part of the nature of heaven is that this word peace is there. And I think that word peace and contentment go hand in hand. Is there's just a sense that all is right. And and this picture of the ark and this picture of the temple is that picture. Is that all is right between God and us, and all is right between us and us, and that's that Jewish concept of shalom. That's a Jewish concept of peace. And this brings us to the end of the seven trumpets. And it says again, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and this time it adds the word heavy hail. Um, but all of those represent the uncreation of creation. It's done. And then we're going to rewind the tape and start over. And so I hope that's helpful for us um, to kind of review a little bit, to go back through um, not only the seven seals, but also the seven trumpets and go, okay, what meaning does this have? And so I want to ask this question again, big picture, going back, reviewing chapter one, Jesus is bigger than we ever thought he was. He is, he sees all, he knows all, he can carry all, he's powerful to stand. And then that's chapter one, chapters two and three, we are churches who are struggling we're struggling with compromise. We're struggling with suffering. We're, we're struggling with losing our first love. But God is on the throne. 
And, and he, next to him, the sea of glass, the sea that looks like it's t- chaos and turmoil, no, it's crystal clear, it's calm. Because if we come to the throne of God, it makes things look under control. And Jesus, even though he was slain, even though he was crucified, he is standing and he is worthy. And he's worthy to unravel the scrolls in 6-7. to seven. Even though the world experiences these same kinds of things that have been happening since sin entered the world, we're going to be okay. We can stand. And verses 8-7. Through 11. And even though the world will not repent to the words of God, it's okay, we continue to speak. And if I were just to kind of say chapters 1 through 11, that's the story thus far. That's the big picture story of what we've discovered. We're going to go to chapter 12, and I've already mentioned the three characters, 12 and 13. We're going to see three characters introduced. We've mentioned them, the dragon and the two beasts. Um, I'm going to suggest to you next week that they do, obviously the dragon represents our primary enemy, Satan. But the two beasts, I think, are going to represent his two primary methods of manipulating God's people. One is by power. In this, in this moment, the beast is pictured as a government, political power, that has the power to persecute or push. The second beast that comes, I think, has the power to seduce. And so the second beast looks like, and, and I would say it looks like kind of a false religion, if you will. And that might be worship of the emperor, which was the false religion of Rome. So one is push and persecution, one is pull and seduce of worship, and the dragon uses both of these against God's people. And then chapters 14, and I'm just going to kind of summarize some things, really 14 through 17, there's going to be a question, which city are you going to dwell in? Are you going to dwell in Babylon? Are you going to dwell in the city of God, which is the new, not the, not the one that existed here, the city that crucified Jesus, but the new Jerusalem? Which city are you going to live in? In the midst of this war that's going on, which citizenship are you going to claim? And then in chapters 18 through 19, we're going to see that these three enemies that were introduced here, they're going to be destroyed in exactly the opposite manner uh, that they were introduced in. So we have dragon, beast, beast. They're going to be destroyed, beast, beast. And then last thing in chapter 19, the dragon. Uh, Really going into 20, excuse me, 20. And then in 20, everyone's going to be judged. Everyone's going to face judgment or find their name in the Lamb's book of life. Which city are you going to dwell in? Which registry book, citizenship book, is your name going to be found in? That's a big question because in chapter 20, it's going to be there. And then chapter 21 through 22, we're going to see this city of heaven, this new Jerusalem come down, and it's going to be described. So if you're a citizen of that, what's it going to be like? to dwell with God in its final term. So that's kind of the, the picture, if you will, me in 45 seconds uh, to two minutes saying, I think this is what's happening in Revelation and how it lays out and where we're going uh, starting next week. So if you come back next week, chapter 12, 13, that's where we'll be. Thanks for all coming tonight or today, whatever this is tonight, tomorrow. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.